Imagine for a moment the end of this sermon. And imagine at the end of the sermon that I, after giving a very striking illustration, gave an altar call, an invited response from many of you. And imagine that dozens stood up who maybe were going to come forward for profession of faith or request for personal prayer or confession of sin. And as soon as they stood up, instead of coming down the center aisle for help, they exited the back doors. Now, if that happened, it would be awkward. There would be murmuring. You might even refuse to look at me anymore because you feel personally embarrassed about what's happened. And when you go eat lunch shortly after this, it surely would be a centerpiece of your lunch conversation. That preacher preached and people left. It would call my vocation into question. It would seem an utter failure. But this is how Jesus' sermon ends in John 6. With a striking illustration that elicits a response, but it's not what you expect. It's a strange one. Many exit, many leave. Straight out the back doors, never to return again. People turn away and they stop following him. Look at our passage. John 6, the very end in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus turns to the twelve and says, do you want to go away as well? Jesus preaches and people leave. What would it take to make you turn away from Jesus? What would it take to make you stop following him? Intellectual persuasion and an academic arena of some sort? Maybe reading a few convincing books or listening to a lecture series from a captivating speaker who happens to be opposed to the faith. Maybe lack of scientific proof. You just don't have quite enough to believe in Jesus, so you definitely don't have quite enough to follow Him. Maybe it's exposure to a religion that you've never encountered. Or maybe a culture that you've never lived in. It's making you wonder if your faith is simply a result of your zip code. That your faith is something that's geographical. Maybe something inherited, but not really something that you've actually chosen. Or maybe the reasons would be more personal in nature. Maybe pain entered your life for the life of a friend or loved one, and it's seemingly undeserved and definitely inexplicable. Maybe social pressure. In our particular culture, the socio-cultural majority is that having faith in Jesus is a welcomed thing. But in many other cultures, that isn't the case. In many other cultures, you would not even be invited to things. You might be left out. Or as I told the students, you might have times where you experience being lonely. Maybe you've just found the Christian life is, well really difficult, that it's actually easier to turn away and to stop following him. What would make you turn away? Church, I told the seniors this in the last service. There's startling statistics. A recent study showed that up to 70% of 18 to 22-year-olds who once regularly attended church for at least one year during high school are leaving the church. They're dropping out. 
70%. The young adult life has become a time when, statistically speaking, faith takes a back seat and the doors become an exit. I challenged our students, would they be part of that statistic? And I challenge you, will you as well? Or will you endure in your faith? Will you finish? Will you refuse to turn away? What would it take to make you turn away? Our passage today helps us. We'll find that we're not too different from those found there. They turn away because faith is difficult. It's hard. And because of an unwillingness to feast on something greater than the breads of this world. How did they arrive there and how might we avoid it? First, the problem of faith. Second, the invitation to feast. And third, the glory of finishing. So first, the problem of faith. Scoot backwards with me, if you will, to the beginning of Jesus' sermonette. Remember, he has just turned a bread basket into a bakery. He came with a picnic basket and made a lubies. The people have just witnessed this. And he preaches and begins, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Believe, and you will not hunger or thirst. Believe, and you will have eternal life. Believe, and you will live forever. The repetition from preacher Jesus is obvious. The people on the hillside are struggling from stomachs that growl, but even more so from souls that are growling. In other words, their biggest problem isn't food, it's faith. Even when they sit on this hillside, even as they see this miracle performed, it's the very reason for the miracle that was performed in the sermon that follows, yet they lack faith. And that's why Jesus says in verse 36, this very indicting thing. You have seen me, and yet you still don't believe. It was not the seeing, but the believing that was the issue. They turned away because they lacked faith. Not food. I wish we could see this. I wish we could see it in our Western post-enlightenment culture. That seeing is not our primary issue, it's believing. Why? Well, man naturally does not want a bread maker, just bread. Man naturally does not want a savior, he just wants salvation. Man naturally doesn't want a master, he wants a mistress. He wants a God of his own choosing and design that tends to his whims and his ways. Man wants the benefits of God without God himself. He wants the benefits of faith without faith itself. Man is naturally opposed to the surrender that faith requires. And that's why thousands on a hillside could witness a miracle like this and leave in the end and miss the whole point. They couldn't see past the bread. Seeing wasn't the issue. Believing was the issue. If only they could have seen the bread maker through the bread. Now, some have said that faith is believing in what you can't see. 
And while I think this is right and think it's, it's a good thing to tell, especially children in the beginning, I think it's only right in part. And here's why. In many ways, faith is the ability to see and believe the unseen through what is seen. It's a lot of scenes. I'm going to repeat that. Faith is the ability to see and believe the unseen through what is seen. And if this is true, then faith is not blind, as some might propose. It's actually perceptive. And if this is true, then faith is not thoughtless and ignorant, as some might propose. It's actually very thoughtful. Faith is the ability to see and believe in what is unseen through what is seen. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, Faith is the assurance, the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay? By faith we understand that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. The visible is a passageway to the invisible. It is not more real. It is not less real. It is a passageway to that which is unseen. Consider the life and miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Chapter 1 begins with this. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made Him known. The Word put on flesh and made the invisible visible. And Jesus, time after time, uses physical realities to display even greater unseen ones. Of turning actual water into actual wine at an actual wedding. Why? To display the enormous amount of celebration and suffering that's involved in the death He would die of raising a real man and friend Lazarus from the dead. Why? To display His future resurrection and to let us know that He alone has power over death and He will not be raised apart from us. Of meeting a promiscuous broken woman at an actual well, proceeding to chit-chat about life and culture and water. Why? Because her soul was parched. And he knew there was a living water that she needed to drink. Only faith can see and believe the unseen through what is seen. And here in John 6, Jesus feeds well over 5,000 hungry men, women, and children. Can you imagine the noise? And he does it with a small amount of bread and a small amount of fish. And he does it, why? To display there is only one bread that can satisfy the deepest longings of mankind. Nothing else will do. But they lack faith to see it. They were thoughtless. They were imperceptive. They were ignorant. They were blind. How many bread-feeding miracles must he do before their eyes for them to finally have a faith that surpasses their stomachs? Are we like them? Are we so brutish and simple like a beast that our only reality is what turns our stomachs or crosses our line of vision? Are we that simple? Friends, 
Reality far exceeds our sight. And faith helps us see. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see the sun, but because by it I see everything else. Don't believe the lie that to have faith is to be thoughtless, blind, or uninformed. The physical, the earthly, was always meant to trampoline us through faith to that which is heavenly. Did any of you grow up with a trampoline? Maybe you have children that you've bought one for and barricaded 25 feet up on each side to make sure nobody falls out and breaks an ankle. When children first get there, they're afraid. It's difficult. It's awkward. If some of you got on one today, it would be terrifying and scary and awkward. Right? But the more you exercise the trampoline, the higher you go. And the higher you go, the less you care about the control that you've lost because of the inexpressible joy and fun that you find the closer you get to heaven. Some of you need to jump. Faith makes sense of much of what we see on earth, but it never leaves us there. It takes us from that point and launches us heavenward. And so you will turn and fall away if you do not give care and attention to your faith and what your faith resides in. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. Do not let it be true for you as the crowds that you have seen him and don't believe. You have to care for your faith because without it, you won't see him and you'll turn away. That's the problem of faith. But next is the invitation to feast. The miracle of bread was intended to display a greater reality. Namely, that there's only one bread who can satisfy your deepest longings. And that is why Jesus, at this point, not only professes to be the bread of life, but he begins to talk about something we all love and we're all looking forward to in about 30 minutes. Eating. Jesus moves from the problem of faith to tell us what faith does. What does it do? Look with me. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews dispute among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Stranger words have never been spoken. On the surface, the metaphor Jesus uses here appears to be cannibalistic. And so we empathize with the Jews' confusion and grumbling. Eat my flesh? Drink my blood? Eating human flesh and drinking human blood was depraved and abhorrent back then just as it is now. It was actually against the law. Yet this is the illustration Jesus chooses to display what faith does. It feasts. D.A. Carson says this, 
eating the flesh of the Son of Man is a striking, metaphorical way of saying that the gift of God's real bread of life is appropriated by faith. We must appropriate Him into our inmost being. Indeed, we are more familiar with this kind of eating metaphor than we realize. We devour books. We drink in lectures. We swallow stories. We ruminate on ideas. We chew over a matter. We even eat our own words sometimes. Doting grandparents declare that they could eat up their grandchildren. It's not so strange. Faith is an invitation to a feast. His body and His blood broken for you. Take, eat. Do this in remembrance of me. We must devour Him, the bread of life. We must drink in His words. We must swallow His truth. We must salivate over His presence. Even finding our souls longing for Him, just like our stomachs now might be growling for our forthcoming lunch. Of all the worldly breads available to satisfy our hunger, there's only one who is able. Now, does this language make you a little bit uncomfortable? It didn't make Brother Lawrence uncomfortable. In practicing the presence of God, this is how he described his relationship to God the Father. Listen. I think it is appropriate to tell you how I perceive myself before God. Whom I behold is my King. I am full of faults, flaws, and weaknesses. And I have committed all sorts of crimes against my King. Far from chastising me, He embraces me with love. He makes me eat at His table. I find myself often attached to Him with greater sweetness and delight than that of an infant at the mother's breast. To choose an expression, I would call this state the bosom of God for the inexpressible sweetness which I taste and experience there. If at any time my thoughts wander from it because of necessity or sickness, I am presently recalled by inward emotions so charming and so delicious that I am embarrassed to mention them. Wow. That sounds PG-13. Sweet to the taste, charming, delicious. Friends, this is what Jesus provides. To faith is to feast, to find Him delicious above everything else. Or in the words of the psalmist, to taste and see that the Lord is good. When was Jesus Christ last delicious to you? When was Jesus Christ last delicious to you? Jesus gave His body and blood on the cross for the life of the world. And when He did it, He called His body and blood true food and true drink. The cross itself was more than an intellectual enterprise to be nodded at or agreed with or even appreciated. If I can say it this way, the wooden cross became a wooden table. And the invitation of faith is to come and feast. On the one who gave himself for you, so that you might not hunger anymore. Too many of us settle for a faith that does not feast. 
And a faith that never sees Jesus as true food and true drink is a faith that I guarantee you will eventually grow stale. It will cause you to turn away. Unless you eat, Jesus says, you have no life in you. Let me briefly discuss maybe a few ways this can happen. One is is pantry-izing Jesus. Those who claim to do this don't really have true faith. Storing him in a cabinet or a pantry to be saved for later consumption or to be brought out when there's an emergency. Forgotten, gathering dust, being welcomed into the home but never placed on the table. Is this descriptive of your faith? The person of faith will grow too hungry to wait that long. They will dust off the can and get a bowl. You cannot pantryize Jesus. He is meant more for more than tragedy, trauma, and triumph. He is what he tells us to pray. Daily bread. Maybe you cookbook eyes Jesus. Those who claim true faith can't do this. He is not a list of ingredients on a page or information handy to study or something to use in conversation or debate. He is not intended to be a sign of understanding and expertise. Having more cookbooks does not make you an expert cook. More information is not more faith. Is this descriptive of you? If so, you will never be satisfied to simply conjecture and conspire and intellectualize Jesus. You will grow too hungry for words to suffice. He has to be consumed to fill your soul. Get him out of the cookbook and on the table. Maybe you seasonize Jesus. You make use of him often as a regular complement to daily life. Of course he makes things tastier. And of course he's out in the open. He's not in the pantry. And you might even recommend him to friends of yours on a regular basis. He's not hidden, but he's also not the main entree. He's simply a seasoning added to your life instead of life itself. Does this describe you? If so, this should never be. You can't seasonize Jesus any more than you can make a steady diet of salt and pepper. He is not a seasoning. He is the main entree. Jesus is the main course around which everything else in life, every other seasoning is prepared and arranged. He is the feast. Or maybe you substitutionize Jesus. Those who do this treat him as a healthy substitution to a plethora of many other things that this world has to offer. Many of them good things that unfortunately just become ultimate things. They are not meant to be entree. And they show themselves to be substitutes. This is the person who feeds and even gorges him or herself on prestige, success, position, love of self, promotions, sex, the praise of others, heritage, family, race, education, money, a myriad of other breads that pretend to be the bread of life. But over time, they reveal themselves to be what they are. Croutons. Broken promises a semblance of a former glory that pretended to be bread, and over time they expired. Now you can make a steady meal out of croutons and at least temporarily fill yourself up. 
but you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be satisfied. Is this descriptive of your faith? If it is, then listen to God's invitation from our call to worship. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you keep spending your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which will not satisfy? Listen to me. Eat what is good. And delight yourselves in fatness. Delight yourselves in the richest of food. Church, there is one bread that results in abundance. There is one bread that results in leftovers. There is one bread of life. It is not like the manna that our fathers ate in the wilderness because they ate that and then they died. This bread, if you consume it, will give you eternal life. And not just eternal life, but life abundant. To faith is to make Him your feast. So how's your appetite? For some of you, it's been a long time. Some of you know. I encourage you, it's time to eat. Church, the glory of finishing, that we might say what Peter said, where else am I going to go? Turn away. Every other way is a dead end. You alone have the words of eternal life. The glory of finishing. What the campus needs, what Greek life needs for our seniors, what the workplace needs, what our nursery needs, what our mission field needs, what our homes need, what our city needs, what our church needs, what our world needs more than anything else is a group of people who refuse to do any other thing except feast on Jesus Christ. Sure, there's other things, but that's the one thing. And they do it by faith because they can see through the physical into what is unseen, and they find their souls enriched and filled and overflowing there. And it's not hard to tell such a person that they need to finish strong. Why is that? There's a glory to finishing. Following Jesus is not easy. It's very difficult. It is difficult to let the unseen be real. It is difficult to have your appetites challenged and upended, your worldview obliterated and changed. It is much easier to say yes to the natural man's cravings. Having sex before marriage is much easier than saving yourself. Procuring an exam from the year before so that you don't have to study is much easier than doing the hard work and getting less of a grade so that you persevere in righteousness. Getting up on a Sunday morning to go to church for a student is much harder than staying in after a late Saturday night. Following Jesus is difficult. I understand, but so does he. He understands. He knew it would be difficult. That's why he called it carrying a cross and not taking a cruise. He knew it would be difficult because he went there. He himself endured the terror and the shame of the cross. 
And what he screams from there is there's a glory and a joy through difficulty and pain that you cannot know otherwise. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this, Lay aside every weight, church, the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before you. Look to him. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. He pins its introduction and he pins its conclusion. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him when you doubt. Consider him when pain creeps in out of nowhere. Consider him when you feel like your faith is feeble. Consider him when you feel your soul struggling, your soul starving. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted so that you might finish. He is the author and finisher. We do not endure apart from Him. We endure in Him, and we endure through Him, and that's why we must feast on Him. He is the source and the supply to keep faith going. To faith is to feast. To feast is to finish. Will you turn away? Will you turn away? Or will your life's ending be able to finish with the same cry and echo the same words that our Savior mustered in His final few breaths? It is finished. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.